What were the chances that almost 100 years after the event that we would know in her own words what happened that night? You just have to remember that it was pitch dark. There's three guys, they have at least one revolver. They let off gunshots in the house that night and with the smell of the smoke and the whole fear that that would have been instilled in them all. The Irish Civil War was a time that was shrouded in silence for decades. From June 1922 to May 1923, families, friends and neighbours took opposing sides as the new Irish state was being formed. Some stories have only started coming to light in recent years with the release of the military service pension files. And I clicked on this file and I could not believe what I was reading. The details were beyond belief. I felt like I could nearly hear the screams echoing down through the decades. The Civil War is often referred to as a brother-against-brother conflict. But it wasn't just brother-against-brother. Sometimes it was even brother-against-sister. Official documents have shown that sexual violence against women was one of the hidden atrocities of the conflict that has rarely been spoken about and seldom acknowledged. There was a belief and still is to some extent, that sexual violence wasn't really a feature of the Irish Revolution, that there was somehow a masculine code of honour, that women wouldn't be killed and they certainly wouldn't be attacked in this way. Buried deep in the military archives was a file with the story of a young woman from Foxford County Mayo called Maggie Doherty. It explicitly described a series of events that happened on the 27th of May, 1923, at the family home, the Doherty home in in Curranara. And it's very clear that, that Maggie was raped and that she was raped by three alleged members of the National Army. This remained hidden, hidden in the archives, presumed to be gone, but actually waiting to be discovered. A hundred years later. From RTE Documentary on One, this is A Dark Night in Foxford. My name is Edel Doherty and I'm from Curranara, Foxford. And Maggie Doherty was my granddad, my father's aunt. Margaret Doherty, or Maggie as she was known to her family, was born in the townland of Curranara in Foxford, County Mayo in 1896. She had nine brothers and one sister who had died when she was very young. We know from the census that Martin Doherty was a farmer and his sons would have been farming too. So Maggie looked after her mother, Catherine. Catherine had had a stroke previously and Maggie would have looked after the house. This was the early 20th century and the lives of families like the Dohertys were dominated by conflict. World War I and the Irish War of Independence in particular. We know that the Irish Revolution was what we might call a low-rape war. It's just a term that was applied, interestingly, to the American Civil War and sexual violence. Linda Connolly is a professor of sociology at Maynooth University. Sexual violence in the Irish Revolution is a key part of her research. So there was an assumption about that in the Irish case, but... Low rape war doesn't mean a no rape war. And it's so it's sort of challenging this notion that women weren't seriously impacted by the violence that was occurring. And certainly that sexual violence was a part of that. 
Linda set out to discover more about this aspect of the war and came across the case of Maggie Doherty. Maggie would have grown up at the time of the turn of the century. And it's very interesting. Her Three of her brothers actually signed up both for the American and the British army, which wouldn't have been untypical of families at that time. One of the brothers, in fact, died in Flanders and is buried there. But the other side of the family, so to speak, two of Maggie's brothers became very involved in the Irish Revolution, in the War of Independence, and then subsequently in the Civil War on the anti-treaty side. Frank, what can you make of this? So what do we say? It was the... uh... My name is Frank Fagan. I am a psychotherapist and a historian. I have lived in the West for the last 11 years and I am fascinated by the stories of the Civil War in this particular area. Frank also came across the file relating to Maggie's involvement in the Irish Revolution. He joined up with Professor Linda Conley and the Doherty family to find out more. She was a member of Common Amman from 1918. Common Naman was the women's paramilitary organisation. The local members of Common Naman here, they would have been involved in first aid classes, fundraising, the running of dances. They would have been involved in looking after wounded Republicans. So this is during the War of Independence and the Civil War. Common Naman members were also involved in more dangerous aspects of the war effort by providing safe houses, transporting weapons and supplies and running dispatches. The Irish Military Archives hosts a list of all of the members of Foxford coming among, and you can see Maggie is centrally written in on that list. The women who were involved in coming among were the linchpin of the revolution. The kind of information that, say, some of the men who were hiding out in very mountainous areas around Foxford, the Ox Mountains in particular, the, the kind of information that they would have received from women was critical both to their survival, but also to the military strategy. So women like Maggie, they would have been very courageous and also there would have been immense fear and danger involved. The War of Independence ended on the 11th of July 1921 with the truce and the civil war began on the 28th of uh, June 1922. Maggie was 25 years old when the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed in December 1921. It brought an end to the War of Independence and established the Irish Free State. The country was now an Ireland of 26 counties that remained under the dominion of the British Empire. Members of the Irish Parliament also had to swear an oath of allegiance to the Crown. This caused a split in the Republican movement that would end up having serious consequences for Maggie's family. The members of the IRA and members of Common Man here in the West were against the treaty. They felt that it wasn't the 32-county Republic that they had fought for and went to prison for. The National Army, sometimes referred to as the Free State Army, was now the official military arm of the newly formed Irish state. The army arrived into Maggie's hometown of Foxford in August 1922, with around 10 soldiers posted there at any one time. Their role was to uphold the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which Maggie and her family were firmly against. The battle lines were drawn and the Doherty's were determined to fight. What we need to understand about, uh, about a civil war is that like when you have a group which breaks away, 
suddenly you have people who know where the arms dumps are, who know where the, uh, the Republicans live. It was also important for the Free State Army when they uh, were in the West that they could recruit locals so that they would have that local knowledge. It's also important to remember that, you know, some of the population here in the West, you know, didn't recognise uh, the army. They would have looked upon the Free State Army as an army of occupation here. Tensions were building around the country as well as in Mayo. In Foxford, Maggie and her brother Willie's involvement on the anti-treaty side became more and more dangerous for the family. Willie Doherty would have been a lead Republican in the Foxford area at that time and would have been considered, I suppose, a target in terms of the, the National Army or Free State Army, depending on which terminology you use at the time. So it would have been a situation of intense conflict. The fear felt in a kind of a violent atmosphere at that time also brought with it its own traumas, if you like, nerves as well as bodies were frayed. Raids were regularly carried out by the National Army on the homes of those on the anti-treaty side. Stories of these raids were passed down through the family to Maggie's nephew, Tom. They would knock at the door, and if you didn't get to the door, fast enough, the door came in. Twice a week. By spring 1923, the country was weary of war and the anti-treaty campaign was waning. The leadership of the IRA called a ceasefire. On the 24th of May, 1923, Frank Aiken, who was then the uh, chief of staff of the IRA, he issues the dump arms order and he specifies that the arms need to be dumped by the 28th of May 1923. So we have the Republican forces are in the mountains around here. The weapons have been dumped and the families are defenceless. Peace was not as simple as declaring an end to war. In a small community like Foxford, the Doherty's wartime enemies were still stationed close by. And in the early hours of Sunday, the 27th of May, 1923, one violent event was to add to the list of civil war atrocities. Maggie Doherty's grandniece Dell takes up the story. From what we're told, the Free State Army officers were at a party that night. The party was supposed to have taken place upstairs in, in that house there. And there was music and singing, and but it was really like a, a, a family ga- gathering. Three members of the National Army went to a party in Foxford. It was one day before the final deadline for dumping arms. I suppose it's just so hard to believe that they'd go from a scene like that and uh, go from there to, to Coronara. In the early hours of the morning, their host, Mr Johnston, walked them to the bridge near the town in the direction of the barracks where they were posted. And then instead of going into the barracks, they took off for Coronara. The townland of Coronara is a quiet country area around one and a half kilometres from Foxford. So it would have felt quite isolated that night. So when they were coming from the barracks, do you know what I mean? Like you don't just wander around this road for no reason, presumably. Oh, no, no. Like those houses there, you know, they're new houses. There wouldn't have been any houses there at that time. So it was certainly a a quiet part of the road, if you like. They knew where they were going, there's no doubt about that. On this isolated road in the shadow of the Ox Mountains, you can find the house where Maggie lived with her family in 1923. The house was three parts. So this was the kitchen and there was the room above 
and the room below. So here, this is the room below. This is the room that Maggie would have been in sleeping. There was two beds in the room on the night. Now, for the first time 100 years later, we can hear the words of young 27-year-old Maggie as she gives us an account of the traumatic events that would change her life forever. Maggie was at home on the night in question the first time the door was knocked up. And the three men came looking for Willie Doherty initially and then they came back asking for Margaret. Maggie was in the house with her parents and two of her brothers. I remember the morning of the 27th of May last. I remember some armed men came into my house. I was in bed at the time. I cannot exactly say what the hour but to the best of my knowledge, it was between 2 and 3 a.m. A tall man entered the room, fully masked. We have to keep a lamp lighting at night in the room, as my mother is an invalid. We slept in the same room. The man was wearing a dark overcoat and a dark hat, and he had a white handkerchief across his mouth and a dark cloth coming down over his eyes. The men gave the impression they were members of the IRA as they began to interrogate Maggie. He came over to my bed and presented a revolver at me and said, What are you? I said, I'm a Republican. The man placed the revolver to my breast and said, You're not a stater, are you? I said, No. He tried to pull me out of the bed. I refused to go. He left the room then. The three ragers left the house then and my father closed the door and locked it. The same men returned to the house a short time later. In about 10 minutes they came back and I heard the same voice saying to my father we have strong information against your daughter. The tall man entered my room again. While the tall man was talking a middle-sized man entered the room. He was in a trench coat and put out the light. My mother called to my father to come down to light the lamp and the tall man said we don't want a light we don't want to be known. The tall man left my room And after some words in the kitchen with my father, they all left the house together again. The men returned to the house a third time. They came back in about a quarter of an hour or 20 minutes and I heard them knocking at the door very violently. My mother then asked me to come into her bed. My father opened the door and I heard the same voice say, We are sent by Carthy to shoot your daughter. It was the voice of the tall man. The tall man entered the room and went over to the bed and said, She is gone with the dispatch, but we will catch her yet. Maggie realised that the officers were using the name of a well-known Republican to lure her outside, as Frank Fagan explains. They said to Maggie that uh, Frank Carty wanted to see her. So Frank Carty would have been one of the most famous Republican fighters here during the Civil War. He was from uh, County Sligo. And he had escaped from prison twice. So they said Frank Carthy was here to meet her. The tall man saw that Maggie was not in her bed. He knew she was missing from her own bed. And her father was in the kitchen and her brothers were in the top room. I then heard them going into the kitchen and he asked my father, where's your daughter gone to? My father said, she's in the room. He said, she's not. And he said, you'll have to come out now to be shot. The same voice said, Are you there? I did not answer. Next, I heard a shot. Then the middle-sized man entered my room and cracked a match and looked around. 
I could see his nose and a portion of his left cheek. I recognised him as a man I knew whose name was Benson. He looked around and saw me in the bed. He put out the match immediately. Lieutenant Benson was a local man, so likely to be known to the Doherty family. The tall man then entered my room. He came over to my mother's bed and placed a revolver to my breast and said, Come out or I will shoot you. I said, Shoot, I'm not leaving my bed. With that, he caught hold of my nightgown and tore it. My mother began to scream and my father was crying. The man said, You'll have to come out on it now. I said, I'm undressed. My father told me to go out then to see what he wanted me for. I got my clothing off the end of the bed and dressed in the bed. I was led out of the house by the tall man. And when I was about at the kitchen door, I said, what do you want me for now? He said, come to the gate. They were absolutely determined. So they came into the house three times. And on the third occasion, she had gone from her own bed into her mother's bed and she was hiding in that bed, and they threatened to kill her father, and they actually fired a shot in the house. So it was after that then that she was taken from the house. He led me to the gate, and I said, let me back to the house. He said, come up the road, Carthy is up there and he wants to see you. So we're just climbing the hill here now. As you turn right outside Maggie's house, there's a small incline up towards a bend. And on this May night in 1923, Maggie was taken by the three men, against her will, up that deserted road. It's hard to know, but you'd imagine that it could have been here if she stopped and said, I'm not going any further. And then they pushed her on so much more. She said 50 yards, wasn't it, when she stopped The following testimony from Maggie contains descriptions of sexual violence. When I had gone about 50 yards, I stopped again and he forced me on further. When I had gone as far more, I halted and said, I'm not going further, shoot me here. One of the men said, she's far enough. And the tall man said, bring her on further. The tall man came forward with a revolver and said, are you prepared to die? I was told to say my prayers, and I prayed. The stout-built man approached me and stepped back again. Instinct told me that I was in for the worst, and I tried to make my escape. I was pulled back by the tall man, and I strove to get free, and in the struggle I was thrown to the ground. I was outraged by the three men, and twice by the slender man. The tall man called the other two away and I was left alone. Then I got up and I went home in a very weak condition. It was almost 4am when Maggie returned home after being dragged from her bed at gunpoint and raped by three men in succession. This was a case of what we called in the past gang rape, what we call today multiple perpetrator rape. Maggie went back to the house that night and she didn't want to tell anybody what happened. I did not tell my mother what took place because the shock would be too great for her. I did not tell my father either. When she got back, Maggie told her brother Patrick that she had been badly treated, as she put it, by the military. I was so weak, I went to bed 
Just a few hours after the attack, Maggie went to Sunday Mass. And she confided or spoke to the local curate. And what we can gather from the evidence we have to date, I think, is that the curate spoke to the parish priest, who was a canon Martin Henry. Uh, He was from County Mayo, had actually been quite active in tenant rights around the Land League and so forth. So he was quite a, a political activist, I think. I told Canon Henry that I recognised Lieutenant Benson. And we must remember attitudes to the body, to, to women, to sexuality, and never mind sexual violence at the time. You know, there was a lot of shame around these questions. What the perpetrators didn't count on was the fact that Maggie would say what happened to her and that she would tell her family and that she would tell the priest and that she would tell the canon. Canon Henry reported what happened to the local National Army who were staying in Foxford at the time. That same Sunday afternoon, the local National Army officers paid a visit to Doherty's. They were following up on Canon Henry's complaint and wanted to take a statement, but Maggie wasn't home. The next day, Monday, there was a return visit from Lieutenant Waters and Lieutenant Benson. An incident report was filed after that. Foxford Garrison, 28th of May, 1923. It was reported that the house of a man named Doherty was raided by three masked men and civilians at about 2am on the 27th of May, 1923. I immediately proceeded to the house and on my arrival, I was informed that the raiders had dragged a girl named Maggie Doherty from the house and kept her outside for about 15 minutes. The raiders were alleged to have had revolvers and to have worn masks. The girl, named Maggie Doherty, sister of Willie Doherty, who was at present on the run, states that the raiders were free state soldiers and civilians. I can account for all the men of my garrison. It was not reported to me by the Dohertys or the civic guards. It was the cannon that reported the matter to me at first. I inquired of the girl, Maggie Doherty, why she had not reported the case to the garrison or the civic guards. She informed me that she did not recognise the free state, also that the previous garrisons had always ill-treated her parents and herself. I do not believe the report and I would term it a corrupt form of propaganda. Sean McWatter, Lieutenant, Assistant Adjutant, Care of Foxford Garrison. The report was signed using an Irish name, Sean McWatter, which in English is John Waters. This name will become significant later. The National Army then decided further action was necessary. There was subsequently what might be called an informal inquiry held in Foxford. Following that local inquiry, Canon Henry was determined that the attack on Maggie would not be ignored and the matter needed to be taken further. It is very clear that it wasn't Maggie herself who was pushing for this to proceed. According to Maggie, she and her family were threatened by the attackers to keep quiet about what happened. They were afraid of revenge if any of them reported the crime. We were threatened by the three men we would be shot and our house burnt if we said anything about the matter. I did not want to put the case any further. Maggie now felt she had no choice but to go along with any potential investigation. As well as filing a complaint locally, Canon Henry also went to Dublin to make a statement to the Civic Guard. 
As a result of that visit, the National Army started a disciplinary process into what happened to Maggie. He also, in 1923, went to Dublin to the guards, to the head office up there and made a statement. So, you know, it it took something for him to do that, to go up there to Dublin at that time and, and make that statement. Recently released army discipline files contain a series of letters between the government, the civic guard and officials, all discussing Maggie's case. On the 8th of June 1923, Commissioner of the Civic Guard, Ono Duffy, wrote to the Commander-in-Chief of the National Army, Richard Mulcahy. I send you attached copy of statement made here yesterday by Canon Henry, parish priest of Foxford, the original having been sent to the Civic Guard for inquiry and report. It is at least beyond question the girl was treated in a most shocking way. Two days later, Commander-in-Chief of the National Army, Richard Mulcahy, directed that a court-martial should be held to investigate the conduct of its soldiers. There are three officers here under a particular cloud. They appear to have made no statement of their whereabouts themselves during the time under question. There is a considerable amount of contradictory evidence. The officers seemed to be constructing an alibi. One of the military witnesses, on whom most reliance appears to be placed, gives evidence contradictory to the evidence of an outside person, no doubt brought in by the officers in question. I think the only way to make everybody face the situation in a manly and responsible way is to have a court-martial. There were three officers. They were arrested because of Canon Henry's complaint. And it was very clear that this was subject to discussion by the Minister for Defence, Richard Mulcahy, Ono Duffy, who effectively was the head of the Civil Guard, and others at the top level of the state. Correspondence between army officials discussed the potential outcome of the case. The army and the government at the top level took this case very seriously. But it was presumed, and it's explicit, that the outcome would be an acquittal. As the court may very possibly acquit the accused, It's important that the civil authorities should be satisfied that we have made bona fide efforts to trace and convict the perpetrators of the outrage. Almost two months after the attack, a court-martial was set up to investigate what happened to Maggie. It began at noon on the 23rd of July 1923 and was held at Union Barracks, Ballina. The accused were Lieutenants Benson, Mulholland and Waters. They were all from the 61st Infantry Battalion Ballina and pleaded not guilty. One of those accused, Lieutenant Waters, was the original investigating officer that wrote the incident report referred to earlier. But he had signed his name in Irish as Sean McWatair. So in looking at the first page, it was very clear this was a very formal process. And... There was legal representation as well. And remember, you know, Ballina, Foxford, people would know each other. We were quickly reminded of the gravity and the sensitivity around sexual violence. Because I know from all of my research that one of the more challenging issues to talk about are the injuries that women who experience sexual violence, particularly from multiple perpetrator rape, are very traumatic to read and listen to, never mind for a family. Oh, there are the correspondence. Yeah. Maggie's grand niece Adele, psychotherapist and historian Frank Fagan, 
and Professor Linda Connolly sat down together to go through the file in detail for the first time at the Military Archives in Dublin. So what do we say? It was the... Uh... It started at 12 o'clock on the 23rd of July. And they were shocked by what they read. Maggie was in attendance and in a way you could suggest was perhaps even a woman on trial. Now she wasn't being tried for anything, but she did testify. But before she testified, the first witness was Dr. Francis Keane from Ballina, who was sworn in. On the advice of Canon Henry, it appears that Maggie went to Dr. Keane three days after she was raped. The following account includes details that listeners may find distressing. And I think his statement is very difficult to read. Miss Margaret Doherty, he said, came to me on the 30th, yeah, the 30th of May, May last. last. She made a statement to me. I examined her and found that her private parts were showing signs of recent violence in the shape of lacerations, that is, tears to the mucous membrane. These lacerations were oozing blood and matter and the parts were swollen. In my opinion, she met with considerable violence to her private parts. The injuries showed signs of having been committed within some days, certainly within a week of the 30th of May. I carried out the examination in the presence of the maternity nurse for the district. This medical testimony had a profound impact on Adele. So that was really enough for me at that stage because we obviously knew how it ended. But um, there it was in in black and white, um, what he had to say. The solicitor for the accused declined to cross-examine Dr Keane on the medical evidence. So you can imagine in an all-male court environment, quasi-legal or legalistic context, that being read out with Maggie Doherty present in front of all of the men in that room and with members of her family also present. You can imagine how that must have felt. Maggie took to the stand as the next witness. Now, under cross-examination by the solicitor for the accused, she had to defend her account of the night in question. My character has gone far and wide and it is up to me now to bring it back if I possibly can. Because of the nature of the crime, Maggie hadn't wanted to face into a trial, but she did want to reclaim her good name. We must remember in the context of the courts as well, there was almost an expectation that a woman who had accused a perpetrator of the crime of what was sometimes called seduction or ravishing, which what we call rape in today's terminology, outrage in this case, there was an expectation that a woman would have to prove that she had no culpability. We use the term today, asking for it. So the idea that something in the woman's behaviour or conduct might have or could have contributed to what happened was not unusual in the context of the time. At the court-martial, Maggie also outlined what she said to Lieutenant Waters when he came to her home to take her statement after the attack. He then began to tell me of the good name he had in Kiltima. And I said, many a man has a good name that don't deserve it. She said, the likes of you is not much good for Ireland. Um, Any man who takes revenge on a sister isn't much. And to me, that's the most powerful statement from her, her testimony. Any man who would injure a sister was not much. And that phrase in itself encapsulates the civil war presented as a conflict of brother against brother. But of course, it was a conflict of brother against sister, if you think about this, that women weren't immune from what was happening and women were targeted in different ways. 
despite that, she did show her strength and her purpose and her opinion on what had been done to her. So you get that sense of somebody who was political, who was very articulate and a strong person. Maggie also had to address discrepancies with what she had said during the local investigation in Foxford. One of the issues raised by the defence was the question of identifying the accused. I was very nervous in giving evidence on the count of the threats used. Lieutenant Waters and Lieutenant Benson came to the house to take statements. I recognise him, Lieutenant Waters, now in court. When he began to speak, I recognised his voice as that of the tall man who was talking to me on the Sunday morning, and I told him so. It's very clear from the statement, from Maggie's statement, that the three officers who were alleged to have perpetrated this uh, rape seem to have been sent back to the Doherty house the following day to question the family. I also identify Lieutenant Benson, the accused here. I do not recognise the third accused. The tall man had a dark overcoat with a belt and a dark soft hat. I did not see his boots nor his trousers. The coat was a good length and fitted him. The third man also had a trench coat and a light grey cap. I am positive about their caps. I was quite sure that they were not Carthy's military. The role of the court's legal officer was to make sure the court-martial was fairly and properly conducted in line with army regulations. Despite her testimony regarding their voices, their build and their facial profiles, he was not convinced Maggie could identify her attackers. I incline to think that Miss Doherty genuinely believes she recognised Lieutenant Waters' voice. But whether her belief is well-founded or not must be carefully considered in connection with possible sources of error. There are one or two other points that might be considered. Miss Doherty says she recognised Lieutenant Benson by the light of a match which was extinguished immediately. Everyone knows that it is difficult to see clearly for some time after light is brought suddenly into darkness. It is also curious that if this raider were Lieutenant Benson, he should be the least effectively disguised as he was the one man whom the Doherty's would know. Uh, you'd feel awful sorry for her because they seem to tune into the light. Was the light in the room, was it on or was it off? What time was it? It was like trying to trick her when they weren't relevant at all. You know, that information wasn't really relevant, but it, it, it just becomes this thing in the trial or in the court-martial. Even though the medical evidence was there of what had happened, it was Maggie that was being challenged all of the time about the details. You know, what was this man wearing? How could you see him? How could you identify him? Then it was the turn of the three accused to take the stand, Lieutenants Benson, Mulholland and Waters. The court-martial tried to determine their whereabouts at the time of the attack. The three of us were together in Johnston's from 10 until between 1.30 and 2 a.m., we had a musical party there. Mr. Johnston came out of the house with us and we returned to the barracks. The three of us entered the barracks together. It would be about 2 a.m. when we entered the barracks. When we got in, we went to our bedrooms. The three of us occupy the same room. 
Other army personnel also testified on behalf of the accused, but contradictions in their testimony became apparent under cross-examination. The counsel for the accused then summed up the evidence. The guard of the barracks that night admitted that with regard to anything that happened between 12 and 4 a.m., he could not say what hour between these two it did happen. He admitted that he got two of the sentries to change their evidence as regards when they were on duty. Both these sentries stated that they could not say who went in or out between any hours on any other dates, as there was no record kept of the hours on which they were acting as sentries. He submitted that the evidence of Mr and Mrs Johnston clearly established that the three accused men left them for the barracks between 1.30 and 2am. Following this summation, there were these concluding comments from the legal officer. The evidence of the military witnesses is most unsatisfactory and the attempt to fix any definite time has almost completely broken down on cross-examination. I think it would be a waste of time to try to analyse the evidence. After three long days of evidence and cross-examinations, Maggie got to hear the verdict, which was announced on the final day of the court-martial. The court fined the accused Lieutenant J.J. Waters, Lieutenant J. Benson and Lieutenant Hugh Mulholland all of the 61st Infantry Battalion, Ballina, not guilty of the charge and honourably acquit them of same. And so at the end of the day, the, the court-martial decided that for these reasons, the three officers would be um, acquitted. And this is despite, despite the very clear medical evidence front and centre at the start which undoubtedly proves that Maggie Doherty was viciously sexually assaulted on the night in question. So it seems to be in a way that there was no justice in the sense that this was not concluded. No officers were accountable for what happened on the night in question. And so this remains an outstanding question in terms of the National Army and its conduct and the breakdown of discipline in this period. Another area of concern is the fact that Canon Henry's statement is missing from the otherwise detailed court-martial file, despite repeated references to it. This statement could help confirm the identity of who raped Maggie. The Canon statement was obviously very, very strong and was the reason why there was a lot of head guys jumping about this. And uh, unfortunately, the canon statement has gone missing. I suppose it is a bit suspicious that it is missing. That in itself suggests that there's still, there's another part to this story that hasn't been completed. We don't know what was in the original complaint. Despite the fact that he had wanted a court-martial, Commander-in-Chief of the National Army, Richard Mulcahy, was not informed by his own army officials ahead of time that the trial was taking place. The head of the Civic Guard was not informed either. The Civic Guard, it seems like they did not investigate this case and that wasn't referred on um, to uh, the Civic Guard so that a criminal trial uh, could take place in, in, in the regular court, so to speak. And nobody else was arrested, tried or convicted of the crime. Maggie's case was now closed. 
When did she write that letter, Idel, and who was she writing it to? This letter was wrote in December, on December 12th, 1923. My dear Agnes. This was after the uh, attack and she was writing to her sister-in-law very in America. In Ireland, and that's the opinion of all. Never a year has passed so quickly or with such tragedy. How many homes are sadly and sorely bereaved this Christmas? Many vacant chairs there are. How sad. In this letter written by Maggie, you can hear how the community were feeling in the aftermath of the Civil War, where over 1,600 people were killed. Willie is still on the run, but we see him often. The military has now vacated Foxford. Maggie stayed living with her parents in Foxford, keeping the house and looking after her mother. Now I close with my fondest love and best wishes from Maggie. On the face of it, life seemed to go on for Maggie, but the trauma of the attack would never leave her. Her father died in July 1928 and four months after that, Maggie was admitted to the county hospital in Castlebar. Medical records from that time describe her decline. Professor Linda Connolly. We know from the evidence from the doctor who was caring for her, Dr. Coughlin, that she did slowly begin to experience mental illness in particular. We can see later on that the terms neurasthenia are used. Neurasthenia was often thought to refer to shell shock in the First World War, but it was applied during the Irish Revolution to refer to subsequent mental health fallout of being involved in violence. Five years after she was raped, Maggie Doherty died, aged 32, on the 1st of December 1928 in what was known then as Castlebar Mental Hospital. When she died in Castlebar, the death certificate refers to a kind of a, a tuberculosis. But Dr. Coughlin, in her estimation, she believed that Maggie's condition was down to what she called the dastardly actions on the part of the Free State Army that night in Curranara on the 27th of May, 1923. We know what happened to Maggie in the aftermath of the attack, thanks to her mother Catherine, who applied for a pension on her behalf. The conclusion of the pension application was that the death of the deceased was due to disease attributable to military service in Cumann Amman. In 1937, her mother was awarded a gratuity of £112, 10 shillings, under the Army Pension Act, but died soon after. Margaret Doherty really is one of the previously, I suppose, hidden, lost casualties of the Irish Civil War. And it's a very good example of the way in which war can be defined in very narrow terms, as through deaths alone, through specific events on specific dates, and that the long-term impact of the Civil War is very evident in this particular story. There were other cases of sexual violence committed during the Civil War, both by the National Army and the anti-treaty side. Shame, compounded by stigma and silence, meant that women such as Maggie were never given their due justice. The violence was of such a nature that the families were were shocked after uh, what had happened, like the brutality of what happened here. And at some level, it's as if the guns went silent in May 1923. So did the people. The Civil War not only affected the generation directly involved, but has had an impact on families and communities to this day. 
in recent years, Edel and the Doherty family have been working to keep Maggie's memory alive. Firstly, thanks to all our uh, neighbours and friends for support and coming here tonight. They gave permission for her file to be put on display at the Jackie Clark collection in Ballina. Maggie's court martial was held in Ballina, and so it seems fitting that this museum in, in, in Ballina here, it, it just fitted right in, it was just meant to be. And so, 100 years on, Maggie's story no longer just exists quietly in the memory of her family or hidden in the archives. We just felt that, you know, we wanted to do what was right for Maggie and to give her a voice. And, you know, some days we'd be trolling through stuff and, you know, it's fine. And then other days it's just that bit harder. And, you know, I had four grand aunts that I know, that I've always known. And, you know, Maggie was my grand aunt. And even though I didn't actually know her, I've always felt very close to her. And she's certainly somebody that I get a lot of strength from um, when I think of the strength that she has had. You know, you often, it's awful, isn't it? You often think, um, sometimes I do think, are we, are we pulling her up with us or are we letting her rest? So God save them all and God bless, isn't it? May they rest in peace is right and that's all we want for her.